This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the discipline of asking questions and where we try to have compassionate and compelling conversations about challenging subjects. My name is Stephen Bradford Long. And before we get started, I have to shout out my amazing supporters on Substack. I recently moved this entire production, my writing, and my podcast over to Substack to sacredtension.substack.com. The vast majority of you listening are not yet subscribed, and you can just subscribe in like two seconds. Just go to the link in the show notes or go to your browser, type in sacredtension.substack.com. A little window will pop up. Enter your email and it is that easy. And then you will get me in your inbox for the rest of your goddamn life. You will never get rid of me. Now, if you like what you see on the Substack and in this podcast, then please consider becoming a paid subscriber. Paid subscribers really do keep the lights on here at Sacred Tension HQ. They keep my six cats fed and I truly could not do the show without you. In return, you get extra content every single week, including my House of Heretics podcast with the former Salvation Army officer turned Christian heretic Timothy McPherson, as well as my weekly Curiosities series where I uh, collect interesting things that I discover from around the internet. The most recent Curiosities article that I did was about protecting your reading and the reading life and how do we cultivate a rich reading life in the digital age. And uh, it's a challenge. And so I collected various articles from around the world, around the internet, about how to do that. So if that's the kind of thing that is interesting to you, then do please subscribe. It means the whole world to me. If you do not subscribe, then I will be forced to live stream videos of myself on the dark web, dressed up as a giant raccoon, staring through strangers' windows at 3 a.m. for creepers on the internet. And I don't want that for me, and you definitely do not want that for me. So to avoid that terrible fate, please become a paying subscriber. All right. Well, with all of that out of the way, I'm I'm delighted to welcome Logan Albright to the show. Logan, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me, Stephen. It's a pleasure to see you again. Yes, you too. So how long has this been? It's been like two or three years since we last It's been talked. about two years. I was just looking at the book that I just finished and like I wrote in the end of it when it was finished, uh, when the manuscript was finished. And the manuscript was finished in January of 2022. But the um, the publishing industry moves, moves at such a glacial pace that like it's just now coming out. So yeah, the last one was in 2021, I believe. So it's been about two years. Yeah. Yeah. So, so 2021, good times. Um, everyone can go back into the archive and check that out. Um, and so tell us some about who you are and what you do. Sure. My name is Logan Albright. I live in Washington, DC. I am a pagan. I am an author. I am a musician. I am a libertarian. I do lots of different things. I have too many hobbies. They prevent me from doing all the other stuff I should be doing. Um, but that's who I am. Cool. Same. Yeah. I, I definitely have too many hobbies that prevent me from doing all the important things that I should be doing. Um, yeah. So you have a new book out called Libertarian Paganism. And tell us some about the genesis of this book. Where did this book come from? 
Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, I've been a libertarian for basically my whole adult life. I would like to say that I kind of more discovered I was a libertarian rather than becoming one. It was like a gradual process of evolution of learning kind of what I believed. Um, and it's just basically a very simple philosophy of leave people alone and mind your own business, um, which is always intuitive to me. And then I became a pagan as I started reading books about, um, you know, about Druidry and Wicca and ceremonial magic and all this stuff. And I found it fascinating and I was completely sucked into that world. And I thought there was like, these were two separate interests, but it turns out that like life is sort of holistic in a sense that all, all your interests sort of flow into the same stream at some point. And I remember the exact moment I had the idea for this book. I was reading a book called uh, The Path of Druidry by Penny Billington. And I came across a passage where she was talking about um, not like not doing metaphysical work for other people without their permission or their consent, or in fact, them requesting that you do it. Don't impose that on other people because it's unethical to do so. And I was like, that really hit me. And I was like, wow, that's like something one of my libertarian friends would say. That's so libertarian. And then I started listening to my pagan friends and I started reading more books. And I noticed that this theme kept recurring again and again, where all these people who don't identify as libertarians politically have all these instincts of, you know, we need to respect people's individuality and we need to respect people's privacy and leave people alone. And, you know, I knew a little bit about the satanic temple and Satanism in general, and I knew that there's a lot of overlap in that philosophy, but I was st struck by how similar these two worldviews were in a lot of different ways. And I typed into a Google search, libertarian paganism, to see if anybody else had done the work on this, and there were no results. So I thought, great, when I write a book, I like to try to write something that no one has really done before. And so I thought there's there's fertile ground here to be explored. So I did a bunch of research and I started just writing down all the ways I could find that these two philosophies were similar and there's overlap. And the reason for it, in addition to satisfying my own curiosity, is I think that there's a lot of people in the world right now, particularly in America, who feel a little bit, you know, homeless, uh, politically, philosophically, spiritually. They feel like they don't fit in with the two major political parties. They feel like they don't fit in with the major Abrahamic religions. And yet there's a yearning for this community, for belonging, for spirituality. And so I wanted to offer this up as sort of a suggestion to say, hey, maybe if you have some libertarian leanings, you might want to check out paganism. It may appeal to you. Maybe if you have some pagan leanings, you might want to check out libertarianism. It may appeal to you. But, uh, under no circumstances am I trying to tell anybody what to think or what they should believe, but I just wanted to offer that up as an invitation to people. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I really appreciate about your work is how you at least my exposure to a lot of the work that you've done is it seems to kind of be centered on giving people permission to be weirdos. Yes. It's like all about that. Just like let yourself be weird. It's okay. It's great. It's empowering actually. And, and just let you, it's permission to be weird. And I really, really appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. I, I have a soft spot for weirdos. I would consider myself somewhat of a weirdo. And I think, uh, you know, society cracks down so hard on people who don't conform. My last book was about nonconformity. This book has a similar theme. And it's, I, the thing I liked about paganism is that it embraces that and it's, uh, it celebrates your weirdness. And it's like, you don't have to dress a certain way and you don't have to act a certain way. You can just be yourself. And I think that's wonderful. And it's a very libertarian instinct. Yeah. So tell us some about your, your paganism. Do you, are, do you follow a particular deity um, just, just let people in on, on what that looks like for you. 
Sure. Mine is probably a little bit atypical. Um, I belong to a group in Washington, D.C. called the Firefly House, and it's a very eclectic pan-pagan organization. So we have all sorts of people in there. And I love it. It's, it's a great, like very welcoming, inclusive organization. I think it's fantastic. Um, we all believe different things. And there's some hard polytheists in there and there's some soft polytheists in there. I describe myself more as like a pantheist where I think of spirituality as inherent in the universe and not uh, a separate embodied uh, being. Um, but you know, it, it's, it's different for everybody. And our ritual structure that we follow is broadly borrowed from Wicca. Um, but none of us are like Gardnerian Wiccans or Alexandrian Wiccans or anything specific like that. It's much more um, a la carte, I guess. We take what we think is useful from all the different traditions and do things that work for us. Okay, so you used you used some terms in there. Hard, what was it? Hard, hard pantheism? Hard, um, hard polytheism and soft polytheism. What are, yeah. What is that? Okay, so polytheism is a belief in many gods. Um, and hard polytheism is simply the belief that these many gods exist as separate, distinct entities. So you may believe in a certain pantheon, like the Greek pantheon or the Egyptian pantheon or the Norse pantheon and say, oh, I believe in Thor and Odin and Freya as separate real entities. Soft polytheism is closer to what they have in like Hinduism, where they basically say there's all these different aspects of divinity that manifest in certain ways, but they're really all the same thing. Um, there's like one divine source, but it may manifest in different uh, forms, and we call those different forms gods. So that's what soft polytheism is. I'm a little bit like even softer than that, whereas I think that you know divinity is one thing that encompasses the entire universe. And uh, yeah, maybe we might experience certain beings or entities, but uh, I don't really uh, go so far as to call myself a soft polytheist. Hmm. It's so interesting. You know, I we might be going too far afield here, but I'm sure people will be really fascinated to learn more about this. What was it that initiated this journey for you? Did you have a mystical experience? Was it reading? Was it community? Like what what was it that started you down this path? I'd say it was two things. It was started with a book as everything in my life does. It always starts with a book. Uh, I remember it very clearly. It was it was uh, October of 2007, and I was living in Boston at the time. And I've always had like a complete fascination with like Halloween and um, kind of magic and metaphysical things. And I, I love those kind of ideas. But I had been a little bit disillusioned as a child when people tell me things like Santa Claus isn't real and stuff like that. And I was like, ah, where's the magic in the world? And I was in a barn. I was in a Borders books back when Borders books was a thing. And I happened across this table of like Halloween themed books. And there was a book by um, John Michael Greer. Um, who used to be the head of the American Order of Bards, Ovates, and Druids. And it was called Monsters. And it had a big couple of big scary monster eyes on the front. And it was like, great, a book about vampires and werewolves. I'm going to love this. So I picked it up and I read it. And in the last chapter of the book, it, first of all, was a very serious book. It wasn't as goofy as I thought it was going to be. And second of all, in the last chapter, there was a whole section on like ritual magic to protect yourself. And I was like, I didn't know that was a thing. I had no idea that that was a thing that anyone believed in or did. And I was completely sucked into it. And I spent the next 10 years just reading every book I could get my hand on. And then about five years ago, I was living in Washington, D.C. And for some reason, it finally occurred to me to like see if anyone else thought the same way I did. And I looked on Meetup and found the Firefly House. And I've been hanging out with those folks ever since. And now I have a nice little community of friends who we can share ideas and talk about things. But for 10 years, I was just a completely solitary reader. Mm. Yeah, that's that's awesome. And you know, it, it's interesting because I would consider myself fairly atheistic, but I'm I'm not immune to the things that you're describing one bit. I, I love all of that stuff. 
And, and, you know, I, I love magic with a CK. I love chaos magic. You know, I've been talking about this quite a bit, how when I originally deconverted from Christianity, I kind of entered just a basic kind of hard materialist worldview of, you know, everything is just, everything is just matter following the laws of physics. Consciousness is just the brain following the laws of physics. And since then, especially since practicing meditation daily, I am now agnostic on that. You know, I, I wouldn't say that I believe, but I also don't necessarily believe that it's just materialist stuff either. You know, that it's just material sure. stuff yeah. either. I'm now I'm now just kind of epistemically open because I, I have had experiences of consciousness as like this this boundless thing, you know, this this boundless eternal thing. I've had, you know, and um and I, I try to practice a lot of restraint in the metaphysics and what those experiences might say about the metaphysics of our world. But what it has done is it has kind of opened me up beyond a purely materialist view. I know that that's probably a fairly uncomfortable thing for some of my atheist friends to hear, but it's absolutely true. Yeah, I went through a similar thing. I went through a phase of kind of being very atheistic and somewhat materialistic. Um, And I think it was largely a reaction against the monotheistic religions, because I always felt like I always found the materialism, the hard materialism, fairly unsatisfying. I felt like there had to be more to life than that. But yet I couldn't get into Christianity. Like my family was pretty agnostic and we go to church on Christmas and Easter. And I was just, they got nothing out of it. And I always found this like is where it chafes against my libertarianism. I always found those religions a little bit too focused on obedience. And uh, you, there's all these rules you have to follow and you have to be constantly begging forgiveness from an authority figure. And I was like, I, that just rubbed me the wrong way. I really disliked it. And so I never could get into those. And so it took me a really long time. I, I felt like I was yearning for some sort of spirituality, but it took me forever to figure out what it was and what it looked like because I just didn't know these things were out there. And that's part of my goal with the book is to expose more people to these ideas who haven't heard about them before. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, so um, libertarianism. So when we use the word libertarian, that has a lot of connotations and a lot of meaning. So what do you mean when you use the word libertarian? It's a great question. And I will first start off by clarifying that I'm not referring to the Libertarian Party, which is an American political party with a capital L in front of it. Um, those are not the same thing, although many people in the Libertarian Party are Libertarians. Not all Libertarians are in the Libertarian Party. So I want to distance myself from that just a little bit. Um, what I mean when I use the word, and I've had to explain this to people many different ways, and the way I've found that I think works best is that I just want human interaction to be as consensual and voluntary as we can possibly make it and uh, minimize the amount of violence and force and coercion in society. That's pretty much it. I just want to leave people alone and let them do their own thing as long as they're not hurting people or taking their stuff. Mm. Are there any particular thinkers or writers or philosophers who have informed your libertarianism that you could kind of point to as kind of parents of your libertarianism? Well, how long do you have? (laughs) Yeah, I spent 20 years reading about this stuff. I mean, there's a there's a big tradition in America of kind of what was called classical liberalism, starting with people like Thomas Paine and John Locke. And those are yes. like kind of the proto-libertarian thinkers. And then in the 19th century, you have a bunch of individualist anarchists like Benjamin Tucker and Lysander Spooner, who I found really influential and like them. And then in the 20th century, you start getting people, mostly economists. Most of the like great libertarian thinkers are economists like Ludwig von Mises and Friedrich Hayek are the two big ones. They're the granddaddies of libertarian economics. 
Um, and then like there's their disciples, someone named Murray Rothbard, who I'm a big fan of, who's like a, one of the more strident kind of anarchists of the 20th centuries, but very jolly and cheerful about it. I like him a lot. So that would be a few of the sources I would name, but there's dozens. Nice. Now, is there overlap between anarchism and and libertarianism for people who might not be familiar with these terms? That's another great question. I'm yeah, I'm glad you're having me spell these things out. And um, I would note in the beginning of my book, I do a lot of work on definitions and explaining what I mean by all these terms so that people won't be confused. Um, so anarchism is, in my view, is basically an extreme form of libertarianism. It's saying we're the state being the entity which has a monopoly on violence should not do that because violence is bad. And so we get rid of the state and we let everybody live free lives. Now, a lot of people take issue with this because historically anarchism basically was a communistic philosophy. It evolved in, in Russia before the Soviet Union was formed. And people will say it's inherently a left-wing ideology or it's inherently anti-capitalist and things like that, which is fine. And I have no problem with those people. I think a lot of the left-wing anarchists are great people. Um, but it has kind of branched out and there's a more diversity of opinion within our anarchy now. And a lot of libertarians are not comfortable with it and don't think it would work. Uh, and they prefer what's called a night watchman state where you just have a state that only focuses on like protecting property rights and and defending your life against uh, invading armies and things like that, which is also fine. I take it a little further. I do identify as an anarchist um, because I just don't think the government as we have it is a legitimate institution because it engages in so many horrendous, awful acts against people's consent and without people's will. Fair enough. And so the word libertarian I think in this day and age has kind of a right wing connotation. Is is that vibe that people get from it correct or is it more expansive than that? I would say it's more expansive than that. I have the whole left right paradigm is very confusing to me and I don't actually know what it means because it seems like it changes every year. Like in the it last does. couple of years, right wing just means whatever Donald Trump says, that's right wing, even though like some of the things he was saying were considered left wing before he became president. So I kind of reject the whole left right spectrum. Um, that being said, there are what's known as left libertarians and right libertarians, and it basically has to go with where your priorities are and where your focus is. They agree on most of the fundamentals but it has to do with the priorities. Um, I, I think it's odd. I, I think most of your viewers would probably classify me as right wing if they knew all my views, but I don't understand why, uh, because <laughs> a lot of my views are marry whoever you want, sleep with whoever you want, um, anti-war, uh, anti-surveillance, pro-civil liberties, pro-free speech, um, all drugs should be legal, all sex work should be legal, uh, open borders. Like I, I don't understand how any of these positions are right wing, and yet I constantly get lumped in with the right wing. So I don't. Yeah, I, I, you know, just a moment of you know solidarity here. More and more, I find myself in this weird position of being accused of being right wing because of views that I hold that I do not think in any meaningful way are right wing in any meaningful way. And they just bear kind of like a weird superficial rhyming quality with views that people have have clocked as far right. Like, you know, like free speech. I'm a I'm a free speech uh, radical. I am a free speech enthusiast, and I believe that that is incredibly progressive and is rooted in a defense of minorities. Because guess who the fuck are going to be the people who suffer first 
when free speech is infringed on. It's the minorities who massively offend people in power, be it political minorities or religious minorities or sexual minorities or racial minorities or whatever the fuck, right? And so to me, to clock that as right wing is just utterly bizarre to me. And so like you, these categories of right and left are kind of starting to fall apart for me. They aren't really starting to make sense anymore. I, I would say that I'm I consider myself of the left. And I think that, you know, a, a if anyone truly scrutinized my positions, they would recognize them as left wing. I mean, like you, you know, like you said, all the things that you described very left could seem to be left wing. At least I hear what you said. And that sounds like, you know, left wing values. But I don't know. It's it's wild. I don't even know anymore. <laughs> Yeah. And like I said, it changes every couple of years. I, I guess the only area where I would agree that I have right wing things is that I believe in minimal intervention in the economy, low taxes, that sort of thing. But I mean, sure. I don't see what's Fiscally wrong with conservative. that. Fiscally conservative. Fiscally conservative. Sure. Yeah. Which is fine. So bringing these two ideas together, I really relate with what you're saying because kind of that core philosophy of leave people alone, leave me alone, let me do what I want with my body and let other people do what they want with their bodies and with their words and with their actions, as long as it's not hurting anyone. That That's very central <laughs> to, to what I believe. And it's also central to my Satanism. You know, I, I think that it really comports with the third tenet of the Satanic Temple, which says one's body is inviolable, subject to one's own will alone. And like that is as libertarian as you can get. Same with the fourth tenet, which is the the freedoms of others should be protected, including the freedom to offend, to willfully and unjustly encroach upon the freedoms of another is to forego your own. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And I kept running into these kind of rhyming similarities so like i'm a big alistair crowley fan um he says do what thou wilt should be the whole of the law which i know he doesn't exactly mean in a libertarian sense but it, it resonates that way with me and then there's the wiccan read which says and ye harm none do what you will very similarly formulated and libertarians have something they call the non-aggression principle which is essentially the same thing it's don't initiate force or aggression against someone who hasn't done anything to you and that's pretty much the the sole axiom of it and like these are the same same guidelines but one of the things I do like about both systems is I think there is that central guideline, but there's no like 10 commandments of paganism. There's no like list of rules you have to follow. It's kind of on you to figure it out. And I like that kind of personal responsibility angle to it. Like there's a wonderful book that called um, When, Why, If by Robin Wood, which is called a, uh, a hand, an ethical handbook for pagans. And that was one of the big influences me writing this book. And it talks about like, we're not going to tell you what to do, but if you do something to hurt other people, like that's going to come back to bite you. You're going to have to live with the consequences of that. And you have to figure out if you're okay with that, if you can live with that. And I love that kind of formulation of ethics in that, you know, it's not an authority figure telling you what to do and what not to do. It's you wrestling with these questions yourself and figuring out what you can live with and what you can tolerate. And can your conscience abide these sort of things? And that's an incredibly libertarian approach to ethics, which I love. So it's like there's political libertarianism. Yeah. And this is like spiritual libertarianism. Maybe I'm and I'm sure there's crossover, but it sounds like what you're describing is a is a spiritual libertarianism. Would you say that's correct? Yeah, I definitely think that's correct. And I think that there's 
I don't know that you can really divide them out in those kind of separate buckets. I feel like sure. for me, it's a it's a holistic world philosophy that encompasses everything in my life. But it, like I keep running into it. Like chaos, there's a great section in um, I think it's Libra Null and Psychonaut, the Chaos Magic book, where he talks about like radical freedom, meaning freedom from your own like habits and tendencies, and you should be able to like change your opinion on the uh, on the you know drop of a hat, and you should be able to change your religion and change your beliefs and constantly try out new uh, worldviews and new systems in order to prevent yourself from getting in this rut. And I found that an incredibly libertarian idea that you are you you want to be so radically free that you don't even want to be imprisoned by your own kind of uh, tendencies. And so I thought that was pretty cool too. And it's just, it, it keeps cropping up all over and over again. And it's beautiful. One of the things that I found really funny and that I love about pagans is uh, there's two sources. One was in Drawing Down the Moon and one was in this book I read called Radical Spirits about the uh, spiritualist movement in America in the 19th century. And like the people kept trying to organize these groups of basically pagans and spiritualists and say, okay, we got to get all together and have a big conference and figure out our organizational structure and our rules. And every time they tried to do this, people would just be like, nope, I'm out. I don't want to be organized. I don't want to be part of a group. I want to do my own thing. And it's it's like herding cats. You can't do it. And it's the same way with libertarians. It's part of the reason libertarians struggle to win elected office is that they can't organize because they're, they don't want to be confined within a group structure. They don't want to be contained or told what to do. They want to go off and do their own thing. And I love that. I find it so endearing. Yeah, same. I mean, the Satanists are like a cat circus. That That is very much what what the satanic sphere is like. I'm a huge so cat lover. I relate to that. I'm a huge cat lover. And one of my favorite facts about cats is that you can't, um, you can't do scientific research on them because they won't cooperate with the researchers. So there's a billion studies about dogs and how they behave. And every time they try to do one about cats, they just wander off and refuse to participate. And I'm like, I love that about cats. <laughs> so... I think that a lot of people listening to this could be like, yes, I'm down. I am. I'm into this individual autonomy, individual liberty. Where does but but I think a lot of people struggle with how this meshes with community. And I sometimes people feel like community and collective engagement or responsibility is at odds with individuality. So mm -hmm. how do you square that circle of individualism and community? I think that it's a big misconception about libertarians that people hold, that they think that they don't believe in community and they have this like atomized view where everybody's just a lone mountain man living with their shotgun in the woods, doesn't want to be bothered by anyone else, um, which is you know not helped by popular culture. But like community is incredibly important to everyone including libertarians. We love communities. Communities are what make everything happen and do things. The, the key difference is that it has to be a community of consenting individuals who agree to be a community together. When the second you're starting to prevent people from leaving your community under threat of violence, that's sort of like a cult. That's not so good. The second you're starting to say, you know, you can only, like our community has to behave in a certain way, um, it's it becomes more of an authoritarian structure. And so I think communities are great, but they have to res you have to respect the autonomy of the individuals within the community. The communities are made up of individuals, and they each have something to bring, and they each have their own unique gifts and talents to bring, and their dreams and their ideals, and all those have to be respected. And if you start trying to treat people in a community like a colony of worker ants or something, where everyone's just an interchangeable uh, worker to be to do the the job that you want done, that's not really community anymore. That's just you dictating to people what to do. You know, it's interesting. This is one of those things that I find myself clashing with with Christians of all people over where 
they frequently bemoan an individualist society, and I'm not ever quite sure what they mean by that. I think what they mean is a lonely society, mm. and I think that that is worth decrying. You know, people are lonely. A lot of people are very lonely. A lot of people feel isolated, but that's different from individualism, right? And right. I also see them decrying sometimes or smuggling in a skepticism of the individual as the most important unit of society. That that concept that the individual is the most important unit of society and I'm very skeptical of that skepticism. And the main reason why is because I'm gay and I believe that it can it it is from the fundamental respect for the individual that is the foundation for gay rights. Yes. And I, I think agree. that with without without individualism, gay rights, trans rights, the the rights of people of color, individual religious liberties, uh, religious freedom, free speech, all of the things that we live by are possible because of that respect for the individual. Absolutely. And with that, I mean, there is there is a reason why it is in societies that value the individual that are also the most accepting of L LGBT people. I think that's exactly right. And there's a I remember reading an article, I think it was in the Washington Post that I cited in my book about uh, paganism being the most LGBT friendly religion in the country, which I think it really definitely is without question. Mm. And I would also say that, you know, uh, libertarianism is extremely LGBT friendly because we don't care what you do, do whatever you want to yes. do. Um, but this goes back to our kind of right wing, left wing discussion, because I, I like people always ask me like, oh, are you an anarchist? Are you a libertarian? Where are you? I would say fundamentally more than anything else, I'm an individualist because I think that the individual is the core unit of society. And in libertarian economics, there's a very boring phrase called methodological individualism, which means that like when you're doing analysis of society, you have to realize that only the individual can act and make choices and do things to affect the world. The right wing will often say that like the family is the basic unit of society, but families don't act as a unit. There's individuals within a family that act and they make up the family. Um, and the, so there's this whole strain of right-wing collectivism, and you see it with nationalism, which is really bad, where it's like the thing that matters is not the individual, it's the country, or it's the family, or it's the religion, something like that. So that's why I kind of reject being associated with the right-wing, because I, I hate that collectivism as much as I hate the collectivism of the left-wing, where they want to make everybody live in a commune. Um, so that's that's sort of where I am on that. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. And, you know, it it just reveals the right left dichotomy for the lie it is because there there's this weird idea that individualism is a right wing principle depending on how it's framed and as you just pointed out the right has historically been incredibly collectivist yeah it, it just reveals how stupid that binary is and it goes back to my my love of crowley he has the, in this book of the law he has the line every man and every woman is a star and that really stood out to me as well um, because that's why individuals are valuable you know they, each one has their own spiritual life or their own even if you don't if you're a materialist each person has their own hopes and dreams and fears and aspirations and like that's worth valuing and and uh, cherishing and protecting there's a great essay from, I mentioned earlier, Murray Rothbard, the libertarian economist, and he talks about why freedom is worth in, uh, protecting. And he says, 
if men and women were like ants, there would be no point in caring about freedom because they'd be all interchangeable workers just doing the same job following instinct. But because everybody is completely unique and has their own things that they're after, um, that's what makes humans special. And that's what makes us worth protecting in our lives and our freedoms worth protecting. And so that line, every man and every woman is a star really speaks to me. And it's something that I think kind of crosses, again, it crosses that line between libertarianism and paganism where the pagans have to respect all the individual members and all their different beliefs and all their different views. And there's no, there's no Pope of paganism demanding that you believe a certain thing. You can believe whatever you want and be part of the group, which I love. Yeah, that's fantastic. I love that too. This might be too broad a question to be helpful, but kind of in your day-to-day, what does your pagan practice look like? How is it embodied? How is it engaged with? You know, for example, for me, I'm in a very basic way. The seven tenets of TST are like Mm. front of my mind all the time and kind of shaping my behavior. The, The symbol of the romantic Satan is kind of always shaping how I view others and myself. And so in what way, what does your paganism look like in in the day to day? Sure. Um, I am would call myself fairly passive spiritually in that sense. I do a lot of meditation, which I really find valuable and I love and would recommend to anybody interested in it. I read a lot. Um, I do a lot of community activities with the Firefly House, organizing public rituals for the eight wheel of the year Sabbaths that, that we can celebrate. Um, and other types of you know group ceremonies that we get together for, sometimes lunar events, things like that. Uh, but mainly it's kind of what you said. It's like these principles and this way of understanding the world, this worldview is just always in my mind. And when I'm outside in nature, I understand nature in a pagan way. I think about the elements, the, the four classical elements, the air, earth, water, and fire all the time when I'm experiencing nature. And I think about kind of my version of pantheism when I'm ex- uh, when I'm experiencing nature in the natural world. I'm like, wow, this is really something special and something to be grateful for. So I guess it's it's more of a, just a way of understanding the world and thinking about the world rather than a set of specific actions that I perform every day. Although there is some of that. This is a question that you are entirely at liberty to not answer or ask me to take out of the interview. Have psychedelics played any role in your in, in this journey? Not for me personally. I've never used psychedelics and I've never really had a desire to use psychedelics. Um, I don't know. It feels like cheating to me. I always hear people talk about like you can get <laughs> you can get the same effects as meditation by taking psilocybin. And I'm like, but you know, then you didn't put it the work. You got to put in the work for it to be meaningful. So I've never really had a desire to do it. I know a lot of people do, and I bear them no ill will for doing so. Feel free, do whatever you want to do. But uh personally, it's not something that I do. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, I've I've never done psychedelics either, but I'm I'm fascinated by how they can tend to launch people on on these types of journeys. What sort of meditation practice do you have, if you don't mind telling some of the details of that practice? Yeah, and this is something I'm happy to talk about because I feel like a lot of people, a lot of books and resources on meditation give what I feel to be very unhelpful advice. I hear a lot of people talk about meditation as meaning synonymous with relaxation. And to me, meditation is not relaxing at all. It's very hard work. Um, so yes. like just yes. laying on the couch and eating chips and watching TV is relaxation. It's not meditation. Um, and the way I do it is I, I started off many years ago, just very simple, sitting in a, a still posture and trying not to move at all for as long as possible. And that's the first step. Don't even think about your brain. Just like don't move. And that's extremely painful at first and extremely difficult, but it gets easier the more you do it. And then once you kind of get that down, then you start just noticing what thoughts pop into your mind and you gradually kind of, okay, you you 
see what you're thinking about and you acknowledge them and then you kind of dismiss them and you try to slow down the stream of thoughts passing through your head and notice what's going on there in the background. Because most of the time your brain is whirring along without you noticing it and you don't even know what's going on in there. So being more aware uh, of it. And then as you get better at that, you can gradually try to slow down that stream of thoughts and eventually try to stop that stream of thoughts. And you can do that in a number of ways. One way is concentrating on one particular image in your mind. One way is repeating a mantra uh, so that you don't have room in your brain for anything apart from that. One way is just trying to clear it of everything and have a complete void. But if you can hold that void in your mind for, to me, it usually takes about 10 to 15 minutes to really click in. You start to feel sort of a shift in your mind. It's a little bit similar to like going to sleep to where your yes. your brain kind of goes into that dream state. Um, and you can have really interesting experiences there. I've had a lot of interesting experiences doing that. And it, and then you emerge from it incredibly relaxed and peaceful, and it lasts a while. But the, the effort of getting there is extreme, and um, I wouldn't describe it as relaxing at all. So I know so many people try to approach it in a relaxation way, like putting on soft music and uh, things like that, and I think it's a mistake. No, I, I completely agree with that. It to me meditation is more akin to reading it in terms of its value as a skill i mean i think sam harris makes this point in mm. in his stuff about meditation where he says imagine if reading was marketed as a relaxation practice it's like well it can be you know like i read a fantasy novel at night to help me relax before bed but it that is such a reductive description of reading yeah like that's that's completely skewing the fact that reading is like one of the most valuable skills that humans have acquired you know that's how we access all human knowledge that's how we you know read the thoughts of masters from thousands of years ago is through reading and so imagine how reductive it would be if we said oh reading marketed reading as a relaxation practice it's like no it it's so much so much bigger than that and the same is true of meditation it can help you relax but that is so almost are second not, not even secondary that is so not in the consideration for it, it is it is one of the many many potential side effects, but it it, it can be br like learning to read. It can be a brutal process of learning how to get there. Yeah, it takes work, and uh, like most things worthwhile in life, it takes a lot of work. So uh, I find it immensely valuable, and you can like learn a lot about yourself by meditating. Learn about how your brain works. I tend to have this like mind body will trialism, you know, people talk about mind body dualism. I have like a three part understanding of it because your body complains when you meditate and says, I want to move my aches and pains. Then your mind complains when you meditate because it's saying, Oh, you need to go pay that bill or you need to do this. Like pay attention to me, pay attention to me. And then uh, when you can get past all that, it's just like your raw will forcing you to, to stay in that state of meditation. And I think those are the three aspects of the human personality that are really interesting. That is interesting. Um, so speaking of libertarianism, mm. is in in what ways do you think libertarianism goes wrong? So like what are the pitfalls that people might be might what are the pitfalls that people might encounter as they go down this path? Well, it's a good question. Libertarianism 
I, I mean, I think the philosophy is sound and I really like it, but a lot of the people involved in the philosophy are not so great. Um, there's a lot of gatekeeping. There's a lot of like, you're not really a libertarian. You're not pure enough. Um, that's not so great. And there's this idea that like, oh, they're just selfish and they just don't want to pay taxes and things like that, which overall I would say is not at all true. Um, I would happily pay the taxes so that other people didn't have to. Uh, it's not about me. It's about other people. But there are, you know, there are certain people who basically want to be selfish and want to be, you know, mean to other people and use libertarianism as, as an excuse to do that. But I would say that's a pretty small minority of the philosophy because most people I've met are fairly lovely and just want to like be peaceful and cooperate. Yeah. Yeah. So Noam Chomsky describes his anarcho-syndicalism Mm -hmm. his his left libertarianism i don't know if i entirely understand his philosophy but he describes it as what kind of world he would want to see in like 300 years and in the process kind of making practical steps to get there like small practical steps it's like a utopianism of like the type of world that he wants to live in or that he would want to to see in the world and and his process of engaging in politics is making practical common sense steps to get there while acknowledging that they might that he might not um how do you relate to that description well it's interesting you bring up the word utopian because i would describe libertarianism as very anti-utopian there's an economist, Thomas Sowell, who has a quote, which I really like, which says that there are no solutions, there are only trade-offs. And so, you know, you have to decide what's important to you and what you value, and you're going to have to sacrifice something for that in order to give up, um, you know, a little bit of uh, security to get a little bit of freedom, for example, or give up a little bit of freedom to get a little bit of security. These are things. So people always ask me, like, well, what about this problem? What about this problem? How is a libertarian society going to solve this? And I always have to say, look, like, there are going to be problems. There's always going to be problems under any system. Um, it just kind of depends on which problems you want to confront and which ones you want to deal with and which ones you think are worse. Um, so I think it's really important that we communicate the ideas in a way that is anti-utopian and saying, no, no, we're not promising the, a utopia. There's another great book um, by Karl Popper about called The Open Society and Its Enemies. And he talks about utopian social engineering and how basically the problem with utopian social engineering is everything has to be pointed towards the same goal. And anything that's not pointed towards that goal has to be snuffed out. So it's sort of impossible to be a utopian social engineer and also be libertarian and letting people do their own things. Um, you have to take these kind of minor social improvements and say, how can we make this better? How can we make this better? How can we make this person's life more free? How can we make this sector of the economy more free? Um, so, yeah, I, I guess I would disagree with Chomsky on that. Um, and the, the the socialist thing is interesting. Like, I'm not a socialist myself, but I think, you know, the, the beautiful thing about a libertarian society is if you want to go set up your little socialist commune and have every, you can do it, have all your property shared in common, run your companies owned by the workers like a syndicalist would want to do, ha have a field day, go for it. I have no problem with that. Just my only issue is when you start trying to coerce other people into participating in that if they don't want to. I am 100% with you on that, where I think one of the beautiful things about about capitalism and about liberalism classical liberalism philosophical liberalism is you can already do socialism under it yeah if you want to do if you want to go do a co-op go do a co-op you can absolutely do that you can do whatever you want that's the beauty 
And maybe that co-op will become fantastically successful and we'll be like, wow, that was a great idea. We should all do co-ops like that. Yes. So maybe it'll become the next Apple and then it will, you know, <laughs> that it will generate this entire culture of co-ops that is possible in this flexible system. Yeah, that's a great point. And it's like, if you're going to run your, you know, communist country, why can't I set up a little market where I set my own prices and trade with people voluntarily? The word capitalism is so loaded and it's because it was created by Karl Marx as a direct criticism of the system. Um, but I, I have, it's always puzzling to me when I talk to people who are like broadly socialist or communist about this, because they have such a different understanding of the word than I do. Like to me, the word capitalism just means I, you know, have a product that I want to sell and you agree to pay me a price for that product. And we have a mutually beneficial trade. Like, that's all, all it is. Um, and I don't see how anyone can object to that. But the the understanding that a lot of people have of it is that it's the government propping up giant corporations and giving them all this power, which I would not describe as capitalism. I would describe as fascism, which I vehemently oppose, you know. So uh, there's a lot of misunderstanding about the use of language. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it all gets so muddled. Well, this is this has been fantastic. And um, it has been great talking to you. Uh, for people who want to find your work, where can they do that? Well, the book is out on October 27th and Libertarian Paganism, Freedom and Responsibility in Nature-Based Spirituality. It's available from Amazon, from Barnes & Noble, from wherever fine books are sold. It's all You can also get it directly from the publisher, which is Moon Books. Welcome to order it from there if you prefer. Um, the rest of my work on various disciplines is available on my website at loganalbright.com. Uh, feel free to visit that and you can see all the stuff that I'm up to. And it's such a pleasure talking to you, Stephen. It's always a joy. We should do it more often. Yes, I agree, actually. Yeah, uh, feel feel free to email me and we can chat. I can dress up as a raccoon and gaze through your windows at 3 a.m. I'd love that. For the people who don't subscribe, I'll do that. Wonderful. <laughs> Perfect. All right, well, let's stay in touch. Thank you so much. Thank you. And that is it for this show. The music is by Eleven D Seven. The theme song is called Wild. You can find it on Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you listen to music. The show is written, produced, and edited by me, Stephen Bradford Long, and is made possible by my supporters at sacredtension.substack.com. And as always, hail Satan, and thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.